Recently, YouTube has been recommending to me a whole bunch of videos uh, made by a guy who spent 10 years doing loss prevention at some big box stores. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, what a loss prevention specialist is, that's somebody who is responsible for identifying and then confronting shoplifters. And this guy's a pretty good storyteller, and he has some pretty crazy stories to tell. One day when he was there working at the store that, he, that was employing him, he got a call uh, from a teenage boy who wanted him to know that his mom, meaning the teenage boy's mom, was headed over to the store and was planning to steal a bunch of stuff. And this teenage boy goes on and describes in great detail what his mom looks like and what she was wearing that day. Well, the guy making the videos was suspicious that this might have just been a prank, but thought he'd better just keep his eyes open anyway, just in case. And before long, a woman walks into the store with a striking resemblance to what has been described to him. And so he decides he'd better follow her at kind of a distance and just keep an eye on her. And, and wouldn't you know it, she goes to some part of the store and starts stuffing all this stuff in this giant purse that she has with her and tries to walk out of the store. And he, of course, stops her, confronts her, brings her back to the office and calls the police. So why would this teenage son do this? Turns out that, uh, that his mom had grounded him for something. And he was so mad that he wasn't allowed to play his Xbox, he wanted to see if he could get his mom arrested. And he did. Not sure how that's going to work out for him long term, but he was successful. As you watch these stories or listen to the stories that he tells, uh, it becomes apparent that people shoplift for different reasons. Some people do it just for the thrill of it. They're kind of addicted to the adrenaline rush that they get with trying to do this without getting caught. They frankly don't really care all that much about the particular item that they steal. They just want to see if they can get away with it. Other people, though, very much do want the item that they've stolen. Uh, they just don't want to pay for it for whatever reason. Tells a story of one guy, one big guy, who walked into the store, walked back to the meat section, and proceeded to stuff about a dozen steaks into his pants. Not totally sure how that worked, but that's what he did. Of course, uh, he got caught, was confronted, police were called, and turns out that this guy was a chef at a local, uh, but apparently pretty well-known restaurant. And he needed this product for his store, uh, but for some reason thought he shouldn't have to pay for it. Then, of course, there are also the tragic stories. The single mom or grandparent who gets caught trying to steal some just very basic food items. Because they've got no money, and they've got kids at home, and there's no food there. And when that kind of shoplifter gets caught, oftentimes they respond very differently than those other two types of shoplifters. Uh, and this guy making these videos often is not when this happens, when he catches somebody like this, he just takes out his wallet and pays for the food himself and sends them on their way. 
But what all of these shoplifters have in common is that they don't think they're going to get caught. They fully expect to get away with what they're doing. And the crazy part of this is that there are cameras everywhere, especially today. I mean, in fact, nowadays, big box stores don't even try to hide the cameras. They want you to know that you're being watched. Yet even with all those cameras, people continue to act like they can get away with this, like nobody's going to know, like nobody's going to see what they're doing. But the truth of the matter is, Cameras or not, there is always someone watching. We're going to talk about that this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your smartphone or, ta- or, smartphone or tablet, you can grab one of those red Bibles in front of you, and if you're Using one of our red Bibles, we're going to be on page 338, Joshua chapter 7. Now, we're in the midst of a series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. This is a book that tells us how the Israelites entered and then claimed the promised land. This is a book that tells us how God fulfilled one of the great promises that he had made to Abraham, the promise of a great homeland for all of his descendants. And this is a book that God has designed to continue to speak to us today. We've recently been looking at the events leading up to and then including Israel's first battle as they entered into the promised land. This would be the battle for Jericho. We saw that just before this battle begins, God reminds Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, that he is not on his side but that what God was offering to Joshua and the Israelites was an invitation for them to be on his side and to be part of his great unstoppable plan to make a people for himself. Of course, though, being on God's side came with certain expectations. It meant fighting the battle of Jericho in a very unconventional manner and then devoting everything in that city to God by destroying it, including all the livestock and even the people. Only the precious and useful metals were to be preserved, but they were still to be devoted to God, but by putting them in the treasury of the tabernacle. Well, Joshua was totally on board for this, and so for a week, he and the Israelites did nothing but march around the city of Jericho. And then on the seventh day, they did it seven times. And at the end of that seventh time around, they yelled. And God, true to his word, brought the walls of the city down. And the Israelites were able to go in and take the city without any difficulty. And this success was a a clear sign that God's blessing was upon them. This morning, we're going to learn what happened when one of those Israelites started acting like God wasn't watching. We're going to see that sometimes personal sins can result in great harm to other people. And we're going to consider what this story means for us today. 
And perhaps even more importantly, what we can then do about it. So we're going to be in Joshua 7. Now by every measure, the battle for Jericho was a a smashing success, uh, both metaphorically and literally. God intervenes in a supernatural way. Israel's victory is overwhelming. Clear evidence, again, that God's blessing is on the Israelites. In fact, chapter 6 ends by telling us that Joshua's fame spread throughout the land because of what took place there at Jericho. All of this reaffirming the Canaanites' greatest fear, and that is that there was going to be no stopping these Israelites. They were here to stay, and it seemed like there was, there was nothing that could possibly slow them down. But of course, things are not always what they seem. You know, sometimes a church can be growing and thriving, and at the same time, they're trying to hide a scandal. A popular Politician can be, at the same time, making shady backroom deals. A smiling couple can walk into the sanctuary each Sunday morning, having just had a devastating fight with each other on the way to church. Things are not always what they seem. And God's continued blessing is not something that we can just take for granted. And so as chapter 7 begins, we discover that there is a problem in Israel's camp. Look at verse 1. It's coming right on the heels of Jericho. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So despite God's clear instructions that everything from Jericho was to be be devoted to him fully through its destruction, one of the Israelites, this guy named Achan, he decides to steal some of the plunder that belongs to God. God, of course, sees this and withdraws his blessing from Israel. Now, Joshua and the rest of the Israelites, they have no idea that this has happened. And so, still riding high from their victory, their great victory at Jericho, they begin to make plans for the next city that's before them. This is the city of Ai, a city that is smaller and and much weaker than Jericho was. Look at verse 2. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and spy out the region." So the men went up and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it. Do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. All right, so after Jericho, this, this should really be a walk in the park. Ai poses no threat to Israel. Only a fraction of the army is needed. Only take part of their army in order to to take the city. Or at least this is what should have happened. Let's see what does happen. Verse 4. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, 
who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. This would be the Israelites. So this has been a shocking defeat. Something is clearly wrong. The math just doesn't add up here. Israel has a superior force, and more importantly, God's blessing, because they are, they are squarely on his side in all of this, or at least that's what they think. But this is actually more than just a, a single loss that they're experiencing here. In the short term, yes, dozens of soldiers have been killed in this battle that they should have been able to easily win. But the real problem is that now the Canaanites are going to think that Israel isn't invincible anymore. Once word spreads that AI, little insignificant AI, was able to force Israel to retreat, Israel is going to be in real trouble. See, up to this point, the Canaanite kings have been terrified of Israel. It's why they didn't attack Israel as soon as they crossed the Jordan River. It's why Rahab helped the spies and Jericho hid behind her walls. But if it turns out that Israel is, in fact, vulnerable, that God isn't going to or perhaps can't assure their victory, then just imagine what an alliance of bigger, more significant Canaanite kings could do if they started working together. I mean, do you see the danger here? This potentially could derail everything for Israel. Now, of course, we know why all this has happened. We know about Achan. We know what Achan has done. But but at this point, Joshua doesn't. All he can see is that suddenly everything has gone terribly wrong. And in this moment, what Joshua does is the very best possible thing anyone in his position could do. He doesn't start yelling at his soldiers. He doesn't retreat to his tent and get drunk. He doesn't even start trying to come up with another plan. Instead, he gets on his face before God and starts pouring out to God what's actually going on in his heart in this moment. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads, which is a sign of mourning. Joshua says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If we'd only been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan... Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they'll surround us and they'll wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? Now what Joshua does here is exactly right. At this point, The world isn't making sense to Joshua. And so the first thing he does is he goes and talks to God about it. That's exactly what we should do anytime the world isn't making sense to us. The first thing we should go is do is go and talk to God about it. Tell him what's going on in our hearts. Well, Joshua prays 
And we're going to see here that God responds. God tells Joshua exactly what's wrong and what they need to do in order to make things right again. Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They've put themselves with their own possessions. They've put them, what they stole, with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable for destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. They are devoted things, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So then God goes on and he tells them how he's going to show who exactly it is that is stolen from him. Verse 14, in the morning, God tells them, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. So Achan is exposed. Now Joshua calls on him to confess. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I, saw the plund- when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, it's about five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, a little bit more than a pound, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took the things from the tent, and they brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and they spread it out before the Lord. 
Achan knew full well that this robe belonged to God and was supposed to have been burned. Achan knew full well that this silver and gold belonged to God and was supposed to have been put in the treasure of the tabernacle. But instead, when he saw these things, he wanted them for himself. He coveted them. He was tempted, and he gave in to this temptation. He acted as if no one would see what it is that he was doing. And while Joshua and the rest of the Israelites didn't see, there is someone who is always watching. You know, the story of Achan reminds us that there is no hiding from God. There's nothing that he misses. He sees everything that we do, even what we manage to hide from others. He hears every single word that we speak, even when we do it under our breath. He knows every thought in our mind, even the deepest desires of our hearts. Did Achan forget this? I don't know. But at the very least, he didn't take it seriously enough. In the chaos of the the battle of Jericho, he was able to hide his actions from everybody else, but he couldn't hide them from God. God knew exactly what he had done, where he had done it, when he had done it, and why he had done it. Because God sees it all. You know, in a time when it seems that so many people are able to get away with so much, it is still really important that we remember and recognize that we live all parts of our lives before God. Every part of every day, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever it is that we are doing, it is all done in full view of God. God sees us at our very best And he sees us at our very worst. You know, there are many, many things that you can hide from your pastor. There are many things that you can hide from your friends. There are many things that you can hide even from your spouse. We can't hide anything from God. He sees it all. And so we need to take seriously this, the fact that we live all of our lives before God. Well, in Achan's case, uh, the penalty for his sin and his betrayal here is very severe. What should have been done to all of the goods that Achan stole, now, God tells them, must be done to him. And so Achan and all that is his is to be fully devoted to God through its destruction. Look at verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Achor is the word that means trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on us. On you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. 
over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble ever since. So Achan's family shares his fate. Whether they were active participants in it or not, we don't know. They also get caught up in the consequences of Achan's sins, much like all the men who died in the battle of Ai. Um, part, part, of the reason, part of the reason for this, that, that, all of, that, that Achan and all his family is destroyed, is that this, the consequence here is to be the definitive ending of Achan's name, his family line. That's why all of his offspring end up dying with him. This is tough. But I think for us to, to fully appreciate what is happening here, we need to compare Achan in chapter 7 with Rahab in chapter 6. On the one hand, we have Achan the Israelite who starts acting like a Canaanite by stealing these things which are supposed to be devoted to God. And as a result, both he and his family are destroyed. But on the other hand, we have Rahab the Canaanite who's acting like an Israelite by pledging her love and her loyalty to God. And because she does this, both she and her family are rescued and saved. Do you see the gospel in this? See, it doesn't matter who we were or where we've come from or what we've done in the past. Those are not the things that matter the most to God. What matters the most to God is is where our, our, our love and allegiance lies now. And we have a God who is more than willing to welcome anyone and everyone who will come to him and pledge their love and loyalty to him above all others. This is the gospel. Now, there's one more thing that we need to think about before we see how this threat of AI is resolved. I think we also need to spend just a moment seeing how Aiken's story is also a warning about the power of temptation. Now, again, Aiken knew full well what God expected of him. But when he saw that beautiful robe and that silver and that gold, his desire for those things was greater than his, at least in that moment, than his desire to obey God. And I want you to remember that, that Achan was somebody who had, who had already seen God do so much up to this point. See, Achan had been one of those who had seen God stop the flow of the Jordan. He'd been among those who'd walked across on dry ground. I mean, maybe he'd even run his hand over the the smooth stones that they had used to build that memorial, commemorating this event. Achan had marched around Jericho. He'd yelled on that seventh time around on the seventh day. He'd watched the walls as they collapsed. He'd helped take the city and gather the plunder that was so that it could all be destroyed and devoted to God. But when he saw that beautiful robe, and that silver and that gold, 
they became more important to him in that moment than obeying God. And we can't even look at what he does here and explain it away by him being in some sort of need. Achan's kids weren't going hungry. His family wasn't struggling to make ends meet. In fact, the text hints that that he was actually pretty well off. When Achan's possessions are gathered up to be destroyed, the text tells us that he had cattle, donkeys, and sheep. That means Achan was pretty wealthy. It's not just poor people who are tempted to steal things. It doesn't matter how much we already have. We can all always be tempted to want more. The story of Achan reminds us that the lure of temptation is both real and powerful and, of course, dangerous. Now, it's very much the case that what tempts me may not tempt you, and what tempts you may not tempt me, but we are all tempted by something or by some things. I mean, maybe that that Babylonian robe just isn't your style, you know, but you'd give just about anything to get that new truck or handbag, or phone. Maybe the opportunity for more silver and gold doesn't really pull at your heart, but a chance to be more popular, to, be more, to get more attention, to get more love, maybe that does. Or maybe what really tempts you is looking at girls on the internet or fudging your taxes, or working too much, or taking credit that really belongs to others. Whatever it is, we are all susceptible to temptation, to temptations. And and no more so when we begin to forget this or we try to deny it. And so let Achan's tragic example remind us all that temptation is real and it's powerful and it is dangerous for all of us. Well, now that, Achan, now that Achan's sin has been dealt with, now that Israel has dealt with Achan's sin, God now assures Joshua that things are now right. It's time to attack Ai again. And this time, God assures them of victory. Uh, look at, uh, it's chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. We've heard that before, haven't we? Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. Joshua sets the ambush. Um, I'm not going to read the text for you. I'll let you read chapter 8 on your own. Uh, But basically, the plan works beautifully. Much like at Jericho, the defeat of the city is total this time. Everyone's put to death. But of course, this time God allows, instructs the Israelites to keep the livestock and the plunder for themselves. So we see here that things are now back on track. 
Israel has redemonstrated its her commitment to be on God's side in this design, in God's designs for Canaan and in God's unfolding of his great unstoppable plan to make a people for himself. But this has been a really painful lesson for Israel because the sins of one person have brought all of them much harm. And sin often works this way. When a father goes to prison, there's then a family that has to figure out how to go on without him. When parents get, or when a parent gets tangled up in addiction, oftentimes it's the kids that ultimately suffer the most. When a nation's leaders act irresponsibly or selfishly or narcissistically, all of its citizens are hurt in the resulting chaos and uncertainty especially those who are most vulnerable. When a pastor fails morally, it isn't just his family. The entire congregation ends up deeply wounded. Private sin costs the public. Personal decisions have consequences for the community. So moms and dads, grandpas and grandpas, your sins impact your kids and your grandkids. Elders, deacons, there's a good reason why Scripture tells us that we need to be above reproach, why we need to live in ways that are worthy of respect. It's because our individual character and choices affect the church community. And I would say to all of you here this morning, this is actually one half of the reason why we follow Jesus' instruction about church discipline here at DFBC. I mean, on the one hand, church discipline is, is very much about calling the sinner back into fellowship with God. The goal is, is always one of reconciliation, first to God and then to the rest of the church. But the other side of church discipline is the need to protect the church. To protect the church from those who would claim to follow Christ, but who are unwilling to acknowledge and address the sin, oftentimes the pattern of sin, in their lives. Sin has, sin has terrible consequences. And very rarely do those consequences, does the harm of those consequences are they limited just to that individual who's committing the sin? I mean, just, just think, away, think about the way that unaddressed anger can do such harm to an entire family. Or the way that gossip, unaddressed gossip, unaddressed divisiveness, the amount of harm that that can do to a church community. No one enjoys implementing church discipline. But when a covenant member of a church refuses to repent and to address their sin, God tells us to remove that person for the sake of the church. 
In fact, in his letters to the churches in Galatia and in Corinth, the Apostle Paul warns that not addressing sin will actually cause it to spread and do further harm to the church. He even tells the church in Corinth that the reason that, that there's been several deaths in their church is because of the way that they are the wrong way that they are celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The way that they're doing it is sinful, and it's resulting in people dying in the church. We need to take sin, both our own and that of others, seriously. So where is the good news? Where is the gospel in all of this? Should we walk away from this text sobered? Yeah, probably. Should we walk away from this sermon with a renewed concern over our personal sins, especially any patterns of unrepentant sins that we might have in our lives? Yes. Yes. But should we walk away from church this morning despairing of any hope of escaping the consequences of these sins? No. Definitely not. See, the good news of the gospel is that our sin is not the end of the story. Yes, temptation is real. Sin is powerful, and it is destructive, both for us and for those who are around us. But sin is not the end of the story, just as Achan's sin was not the end of Israel's story. Now, Achan had to bear the full weight of what he had done. Achan had to die for his own sins so that Israel could live and then prosper in the promised land. But see, God's plan from the very beginning has always been to make a better way for us to be able to come back to him. To make a way for our sins to be atoned for that wouldn't destroy us. To make a way for our sins to be forgiven that wouldn't cost us our lives. And that is, of course, the reason why God sent his son. Jesus came not just in order to show us how to truly live. He also came in order to die for us. While Achan died for his own sin, Jesus died for our sin. And while Achan's sin meant death for many, Jesus' death means life for many, many more. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we all need and long for. And so, my friends, our sins matter. They are toxic to us. They do damage to our relationship with God. They bring harm to those who are around us, especially to those who are closest to us. And there is no hiding them from God. He sees it all. And at the same time, he does expect us to live righteously. But God has also made a way for us to be forgiven. 
in the scriptures, it tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're hearing this message this morning and you know that you are struggling with sin, perhaps a particular pattern of sin. Don't keep trying to hide it from God. It's not working. He already sees all of it. Instead, talk to him about it. Be honest with him about it. Be honest with him about all that's going on in your heart around it. And if you are truly repentant, he will forgive you. But then I want to really encourage you to also find a trusted friend or a pastor or an elder or a deacon, someone who truly loves Jesus and who loves you, and talk to them about it as well. See, we were never intended to have to face all this stuff alone. Part of the reason why God created the church and then commanded all of Jesus' followers to be part of it. It's because we are in this together and because God's mercy and goodness is greater than our sin. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you for your glory, for your holiness, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your commitment to your great unstoppable plan to make a people for yourself and inviting us to participate in that plan. Jesus, we pledge our love and our loyalty to you as our rescuer and as our king. Thank you for becoming one of us in order to show us how to truly live and then dine in our place for our sins. Thank you for taking for us the judgment and wrath that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and accepted by God. Holy Spirit, continue to use these scriptures to remind us of who you are, who we are, and how it is you want us to live in this world. Continue to show us how all of the scriptures find its greatest fulfillment and meaning in Jesus. And fill us with all the grace and wisdom and faith and love that we need in order to live well and to live faithfully in our beautiful but broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.